Chapter 17 of Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charles Sapp. Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. Chapter 17. Ciudad Rodrigo. Before O'Connor begins, the colonel said, you had better lay on the table in front of you the pocket maps I got from Lisbon for you last year, after O'Connor had lectured us on the advantages of knowing the country. I can tell you, Terence, that they have been of no small use to us since we left Torres Vedras, and I think that even O'Grady could pass an examination as to the roads and positions along the frontier with credit to himself. I think, gentlemen, that you who have not got your maps with you would do well to fetch them. You will then be able to follow Colonel O'Connor's story and get to know a good deal more about the country where I hope we shall be fighting next spring than we should in any other way. Several of the officers left the room and soon returned with their maps. I feel almost like a schoolmaster, Terence laughed. But indeed, as our work consisted almost entirely of rapid marching, which you would scarcely be able to follow without maps, it may really be useful if we campaign across there to know something of the roads and the position of the towns and villages. Then he proceeded to relate all that had taken place, first describing the incidents of the battle and their work among the mountains. You understand, he said, that my orders were not so much to injure the enemy as to deceive him as to the amount of our force, and to lead them to believe it to be very much stronger than it really was. This could only be done by rapid marches, and as you will see, the main object was to cut off all his lines of communication, and at the same time to show ourselves in force at points a considerable distance apart. To effect this, we on several occasions marched upwards of sixty miles in a day, and upwards of forty several days in succession, a feat that could hardly be accomplished except by men at once robust and well accustomed to mountain work, and trained to long marches, as those of my regiment have been since they were first raised. Then taking out a copy of his report, he gave a much fuller detail than in the report itself, an account of the movements of the various columns and flying parties during the first ten days, and then more briefly the operations between Burgos and Valladolid, ending up by saying, You see, Colonel, there was really nothing out of the way in all this. We had the advantage of having a great number of men who knew the country intimately, and the cutting of all their communications the exaggerated reports brought to them by the peasants, and the maintenance of our posts round Salamanca and Zamora, while we were operating near Burgos and Valladolid, impressed the commanders of these towns with such an idea of our strength, and such uneasiness as to their communications, that after the reverse to their column, none of them ever ventured to attack us in earnest. That is no doubt true, the colonel said, but to have done all this when, with the reinforcements sent up, and the very strong garrison at four of the towns, to say nothing in the division of Burgos, they had forty thousand men disposable. It's a task that wanted a head well screwed on. I can see how you did it, but that would be a very different thing to doing it oneself. However, you have taught us a great deal in the geography of the country between the frontier and Burgos, and it ought to be useful. If I had received an order this afternoon to march with the regiment at Tordesillas, for example, I should have known no more where the place stood, or by what road I was going to go to it, than if they had ordered me to march to Jericho. Now I should be able to go straight for it by the shortest line. 
I should cross the roads at points at which we were not likely to be attacked, and throw out strong parties to protect our flanks till we had passed. I should feel that I was not stumbling along in the dark, and just trusting to luck. Now, Colonel, we must be off to our own quarters, Terence said. We have been too long away now, and if I had not known that Harara and the Majors were to be trusted to do their work, and in fact they did it well without my assistance all the time I was away prisoner, I could not have left them as I did half an hour after they had encamped. The next morning Terence received a copy of the orders of the day of the division at present under General Crawford's command, together with the general orders of the whole army from headquarters. In the latter to which Terence first turned was a paragraph. Lord Wellington expresses his great satisfaction at the exceptional services rendered by the Minho Portuguese Regiment under its commander, Captain T. O'Connor, of the headquarters staff, bearing the rank of colonel in the Portuguese army. He has had great pleasure in recommending him to the commander-in-chief for promotion in the British army. He is also to report very favorably the conduct of Lieutenant Ryan of the Mayo Fusiliers and Ensign's Bull and McWitty all attached for service to the Minhole Regiment, and shall bring before General Lord Beersford that of Lieutenant Colonel Harara of the same regiment. In the divisional orders of the day appeared the words, In noticing the arrival of the Minhole Portuguese Regiment under the command of Colonel Terence O'Connor, to join the division temporarily under his command, General Crawford takes this opportunity of congratulating Colonel O'Connor on the most brilliant services that his regiment has performed in a series of operations upon the Spanish side of the frontier. Four days later, Terence received two letters from home. These are written after the receipt of that sent off by him on his arrival at Cadiz, narrating his escape. His father wrote, My dear Terence, your letter received this morning has taken a heavy load off our minds. Of course, we saw the dispatches giving particulars of the Battle of Fuentes de Orno, which, by the way, seems to have been rather a confused sort of affair, and the enemy must have blundered into it just as we did, only as they were all there, and we only came up piecemeal. They should have thrashed us handsomely if they had known their business. Well, luck is everything, and as you have had a good deal more than your share of it since you joined, one must not grumble if the jade has done you a bad turn this time. However, as you have got safely out of their hands, you have no reason for complaint. Still, you had best not try the thing too often. Next time, you may not find a good-looking girl to help you out. By the way, you don't tell us whether she was good-looking. Mention it in your next. Mary is very curious about it. We are getting on capitally here, and I can tell you the old place looks quite imposing, and I was never so comfortable in my life. We have as much company as I care for, and scarce a day passes, but some young fellow or other rides over, on the pretense of talking over the war news with me, but I am too old a soldier to be taken in, and know well enough that Mary is the real attraction. My leg has now so far recovered, that I can sit a horse. But though I can ride with your cousin, when the hounds meet anywhere near, I cannot venture to follow. For if I got a spill, it might bring on the old trouble again, and lay me up for a couple of years. I used to hope that I should get well enough to be able to apply to be put on full pay again, but I feel myself too comfortable here to think of it. And indeed, until I have handed Mary to someone else's keeping, 
it would, of course, be impossible. And I have quite made up my mind to be moored here for the rest of my life, but to return. Of course, as soon as I saw you were missing, I wrote to an old friend on the general staff at Dublin, and asked him to write to the horse guards. The answer came back that it was known that you had been taken prisoner, and that you were wounded, but not severely. You were commanding the rear face of the square into which your regiment had been thrown, when your horse, which was probably hit by a bullet, ran away with you into the ranks of the enemy's cavalry. After that we were, of course, more comfortable about you, and Mary maintained that you would very soon be turning up again, like a bad penny. I need not say that we are constantly talking about you. Now take care of yourself, Terence. Bear in mind that, if you get yourself killed, there will be no more adventures for you, at least none over which you will have any control. Your cousin has just expressed the opinion that she does not think you were born to be shot. She thinks that a rope is more likely than a bullet to cut short your career. She is writing to you herself, and as her tongue runs a good deal faster than mine, I have no doubt that her pen would do so also. As you say, with your Portuguese pay and your own, you are doing well, but if you should get pinched at any time, be sure to draw on me, up to any reasonable amount. It seems to me that things are not going on very well in the frontier, and I should not be surprised to hear that Wellington is in full retreat again for Torres Vedras. Remember me to the Colonel, O'Driscoll, and all the others. I see by the Gazette that Stokes, who was junior ensign when the regiment went into action of Vimera, has just got his step. That shows the changes that have taken place, and how many good fellows have fallen out of the ranks. Again I say, take care of yourself. Your affectionate father. His cousin's letter was, as usual, long and chatty, telling him about his father, their pursuits and amusements, and their neighbors. You don't deserve so long a letter, she said when she was approaching the conclusion. For although I admit your letters are long, you never seem to tell one just the things one wants to know. For example, you told us exactly the road you traveled down to Cadiz, with the names of the villages and so on, just as if you were writing an official report. Your father says it is very interesting, and has been working it all out on a map. It is very interesting to me to know that you have got safely to Cadiz, but as there were no adventures by the way, I don't care a snap about the names of the villages you passed through, or the exact road you traversed. Now, on the other hand, I should like to know all about this young woman who helped you to get out of prison. You don't say a word about what she is like, whether she is pretty or plain. You don't even mention her by name, or say whether she fell in love with you or you with her. Though I admit that you do say that she was engaged to the muleteer Garcia. I think if I had been in his place, I should have managed to let you fall into the hands of the French again. I should say a man was a great fool to help to rescue anyone whose girl had taken all sorts of pains to get out of prison. At any rate, sir, I expect you to give me a fair and honest description of her the next time you write, for I consider your silence about her to be in the highest degree suspicious. However, I have the satisfaction of knowing that you are not likely to be in Salamanca again for a very long time. Your father says he does not think anything will be done, until the present ministry are kicked out here, and Wellington hangs the principal members of all the juntas of Portugal and all that he could get at in Spain. He is the most bloodthirsty man I have ever come across, according to his own account, 
but in reality, he will not hurt a fly. He is always doing kind actions amongst the peasantry, and the major is quite the most popular man in this part of the country. I have not yet forgiven you for having gone straight back to Spain instead of running home for a short time when you were so close to us in Jersey. I told you when I wrote that I should never forgive you, and I am still of the same opinion. It was too bad. Your father has just called to ask if I am going on writing all night, and it is quite time to close that I may go with his own letter, which a boy is waiting to carry on horseback to the post office four miles away. So good-bye. Your very affectionate cousin, Mary. The next two months passed quietly at Pinhell. Operations continued to be carried on at various points, but although several encounters of minor importance took place, the combatants were engaged rather in endeavoring to feel each other's positions and to divine each other's intentions than to bring about a serious battle. Mormon believed Wellington to be stronger than he was, while the latter rather underestimated the French strength. Thus there were, on both sides, moments of advance and retirement. During the time that had elapsed since the battles of Fuentes de Orno and Albuera, Badajoz had been again besieged by the British, but ineffectually, and in August Wellington, taking advantage of Marmont's absence in the south, advanced and established a blockade of Ciudad Rodrigo. This had led to some fighting, the activity of General Hill, and the serious menace to the communications affected by Terence's Portuguese and the guerrillas had prevented the French from gathering insufficient strength either to drive the blockading force across the frontier again, or from carrying out Napoleon's plans for the invasion of Portugal. Wellington, on his part, was still unable to move, owing to the absence of transport and the manner in which the Portuguese government thwarted him at every point leaving all his demands that the roads should be kept in good order unattended to, starving their own troops to such an extent that they were altogether unfit for action, placing every obstacle to the calling out of new levies and in every way hindering his plans. He obtained but little assistance or encouragement at home. His military chest was empty. The muleteers who kept up the supply of food for the army were six months in arrears of pay. The British troops were also unpaid, badly supplied with clothes and shoes, while money and stores were still being sent in unlimited quantities to the Spanish juntas, where they did no good whatever, and might as well have been thrown into the sea. But in spite of all these difficulties, the army was daily improving in efficiency. The men were now inured to hardships of all kinds. They had in three pitched battles proved themselves superior to the French, and they had an absolute confidence in their commander. Much was due to the efforts of Lord Fitzroy Somerset, Wellington's military secretary, who, by entering into communication with the commanders of brigades and regiments, most of whom were quite young men, for the greater part of the army was but of recent creation, was enabled not only to learn something of the state of discipline in each regiment, but greatly to encourage and stimulate the efforts of its officers, who felt that their doings of their regiment were observed at headquarters, that merit would be recognized without favoritism, and that any failure in the discipline or morale of those under their orders would be noted against them. Twice during the two months Terence had been sent for to headquarters, in order that he might give Lord Fitzroy minute information concerning the various roads and localities, 
point out natural obstacles where an obstinate defense might be made by an enemy, or which could be turned to advantage by advancing army. The route maps that he had sent were frequently turned to and fully explained. The second visit took place in the last week of November, and on his arrival the military secretary began the conversation by handing a gazette to him. This arrived yesterday, Colonel O'Connor, and I congratulate you that, upon the very strong recommendation of Lord Wellington, you are gazetted to a majority. Now that your position is so well assured, there will be no longer occasion for you to remain nominally attached to the headquarters staff. Of course, it was before I came out that this was done, and I learned that the intention was that you would not act upon the staff, but it was to be merely an honorary position without pay, in order to add to your authority and independence, when you happen to come in contact with Portuguese officers of a higher rank. That was so, sir. I was very grateful for the kindness that Lord Wellington showed, in thus enabling me to wear the uniform of his staff, which was of great assistance to me at the time, and indeed, I am deeply conscious of the kindness with which he has, on every occasion, treated me, and for his recommending me for promotion. I should have been personally glad, Lord Fitzroy went on, to have had you permanently attached to our staff, as your knowledge of the country might, at times, be of great value, and of your zeal and energy you have given more than ample proofs. I spoke of the matter to the general this morning. He agreed with me that you would be a great addition to the staff, but upon the other hand, such a step would very seriously diminish the efficiency of the regiment that you raised and have since commanded the regiment has lately rendered quite exceptional services and under your command we reckon it to be as valuable in the fighting line as if it were one of our own which is more than can be said for any other portuguese battalion although some of them have of late fought remarkably well i do not say that colonel Herrera, aided by his three english officers who, by the way, are all promoted in this gazette, the two ensigns to the rank of lieutenants and Mr. Ryan to that of captain, would not keep the regiment in a state of efficiency so far as fighting is concerned, but without your leading it could not be relied upon to act for detached service such as it has performed under you. Thank you, sir. Of course, it would be a great honor to me to be on the general staff, but I should be very sorry to leave the regiment, and frankly, I do not think they would get on well without me. Colonel Herrera is ready to bestow infinite pains on his work, but I do not think that he would do things on his own responsibility. Bull and McWitty have both proved themselves zealous and active, and I can always rely upon them to carry out my orders to the letter, but I doubt if they would get on as well with Herrera as they do with me. I am very glad to hear that they and Mr. Ryan have got their steps. The latter makes an admirable adjutant, and if I had to choose one of the four for the command, I should select him but he has not been very long with the regiment, is not known personally, and would not, I think, have the same influence with the Portuguese officers and men. Moreover, I am afraid that, having been in command so long, I should miss my independence if I only had to carry out the orders of others. I could quite understand that, the military secretary said with a smile. I could quite realize the fascination of the life of a partisan leader, especially when he has which Trant and the others have not, a body of men whom he has trained himself, and upon whom he can absolutely rely. You can still, of course, wear the uniform of a field officer on the general staff, and so will have very little alteration to make, save by adding the proper insignia of your rank. I will write you a line authorizing you to do so. Now let us have a turn at your maps. 
I may tell you in confidence that if an opportunity offers, we shall at once convert the blockade of Ciudad into a siege, and hope to carry it before the enemy can march with sufficient force to its relief. To do so, he would naturally collect all his available forces from Salamanca, Zamora, and Valladolid, and would probably attain reinforcements from Madrid and Estamadura. And I want to ascertain, as far as possible, the best means of checking the advance of some of these troops, by the blowing up of bridges or the throwing forward of such a force as your regiment to seize any defile or other point that could be held for a day or two, and an enemy's column thus delayed. Even twenty-four hours might be of importance. I understand, sir. Of course, the passage between Madrid and Avila might be retained for some little time, especially if the defenders had a few guns, but they would be liable to be taken in the rear by a force at Avila, where there were, when I went down south, over five thousand men. As to the troops coming from the north, they would doubtless march on Salamanca. From that town, they would cross the Hubra and the Yeltas so near their sources that no difficulty would be caused by the blowing up of bridges, if any exist. But the pass over the Sierra de Gata on the south of Ciudad might be defended by a small force without difficulty. The masts were now got out, and the matter gone into minutely. After an hour's conversation, Lord Fitzroy said, Thank you, Colonel O'Connor. Some of the information that you have given me will assuredly be very useful if we besiege Ciudad. From what we hear, there are a good many changes being made in the French command. Napoleon seems about to engage in a campaign with Russia, and is likely to draw off a certain portion of the forces here. And while these changes are being made, it would seem to offer a good opportunity for us to strike a blow. On the last day of December, Terence received the following order. Colonel O'Connor will draw six days' rations from the commissariat, and at daybreak tomorrow will march to the river Aqueda, and on the following day will ford that river and will post himself along the line of the Yeltas from its junction with the Hubra to the mountains, and will prevent any person or parties crossing from this side. It is of the highest importance that no intelligence of the movements of the army should be sent, either by the garrison of Ciudad or by the peasantry to Salamanca. When his provisions are exhausted, he is authorized to hire carts and send in to the army round Ciudad, but if possible, he should obtain supplies from the country near him, and is authorized to purchase provisions and to send in accounts and vouchers for such purchases to the paymaster's department. Hurrah, Ryan! he exclaimed on reading the order. Things are going to move at last. This means, of course, that the army is going to besiege Ciudad at once, and that we are to prevent the French from getting any news of it until it is too late for them to relieve it. For the last month, guns and ammunition have been arriving at Almeida, and I thought that this weary time of waiting was drawing to an end. I'm glad indeed, Terence. I must say that I was afraid that we should not be moving until the spring. Shall we go in and say goodbye to our fellows? Yes, we may as well, but mind, don't say where we are going to, only that we are ordered away. I don't suppose that the regiments will know anything about it, till within an hour of the time they march. There can be no doubt that it is a serious business. Ciudad held out for weeks against Messina, and with Marmont within a few days' march, with an army at least as strong as ours, it will be a tough business indeed to take it before he can come up to his relief, and I can well understand that it is all important that he shall know nothing about the siege till it is too late for him to arrive in time. We have come in to say good-bye, Colonel, 
Terrence said as he and Ryan entered the mess room of the Mayo Fusiliers that evening. And where are you off to, O'Connor? Well, sir, I don't mind mentioning it here, but it must go no further. The chief, knowing what we are capable of, proposes that I shall make a rapid march to Madrid, seize the city, and bring King Joseph back a prisoner. There was a roar of laughter. Terence, my boy, Captain O'Grady said. That is hardly a mission worthy of a fighting man like yourself. I expect that you are hiding something from us, and that the real idea is that you should traverse Spain and France, enter Germany, and see Boney, and carry him off with you to England. I dare not tell you whether you are right or not, O'Grady. Things of this sort must not be even whispered about. It is a wonderfully good guess that you have made, and when it is all over, you will be able to take credit for having divined what was up. But for mercy's sake, don't talk about it. Keep us silent at the grave, and if anyone should ask you what has become of us, pretend you know nothing about it. But you are going, O'Connor, the colonel said when the laughter had subsided. Yes, colonel, we march tomorrow morning. I dare say you will hear of us before many days are over, and may perhaps be able to make even a closer guess than O'Grady as to what we are doing. I am heartily glad that we are off. We are now at our full strength again. Most of the wounded have rejoined, and I could have filled up the vacancies a dozen times over. The Portuguese know that I always manage to get food for my men, somehow, which is more than can be said for the other Portuguese regiments, though those of Trant and Pack are better off than Beersford's regulars. Then, too, I think they like fighting, now that they feel that they are a match for the French, man for man. They get a fair share of it at any rate. The three months that we have been idle have been useful, as the new recruits know their work as well as the others. Then you don't know how much longer we are going to stop in this best le hole? O'Grady asked. Well, I will tell you this much, O'Grady. I fancy that, before this day week, you will all have work to do, and that it is likely to be hot. That is a comfort, Terence. But, my dear boy, have a little pity on us and don't finish out the business by yourselves. Remember that we have come a long way, and that it will be mighty hard for us if you were to clear the French out of Spain, and leave nothing for us to do but to bury the dead and escort their army as prisoners to the port. I will bear it in mind, O'Grady, but don't you forget the past. You know how desperately you grumbled at Rolisa because the regiment was not in it, and how you got your wish of Emira and lost an arm in consequence. So even if I do, as you say, push the French out of Spain, you will have the consolation of knowing that you will be able to go back to Ireland without leaving any more pieces of you behind. There is something in that, Terence, O'Grady said gravely. I think that when this is over, I shall go on half pay, and there may as well be as much of me left as possible to enjoy it. It's an ungrateful country I'm serving, in spite of all that I've done for it and the loss of my arm into the bargain. Here am I, still a captain, though maybe I am near the top of the list. Still, it is but a captain I am, and here are two goosins like yourself and Dick Ryan, the one of you marching about a field officer, and the other a captain. It is heart-breaking entirely, and me one of the most zealous officers of the service, but it is never any luck I have had from the day I was born. It will come some day, never fear, O'Grady and perhaps it may not be so far off as you fear. 
Well, Colonel, we will just take a glass with you for luck, and then say good night, for I have a good many things to see after, and must be up very early, so as to get our tents packed and handed over to draw our rations, eat our breakfast, and be off by seven. It was close upon that hour when the regiment marched. It was known that there was no French troops west of the Hubra, but after fording the Equata, the force halted until nightfall, and then moved forward and reached the Hubra at midnight, lay down to sleep until daybreak, and then extended along the bank of the Yeltes as far as its source along the mountains, thus cutting the roads from Ciudad to Salamanca in the north. The distance to be watched was some twenty miles, but as the river was in many places unfordable, it was necessary only to place patrols here, while strong parties were posted, not only on the main roads, but at all points where by-roads or peasants' tracks led down to the bank. On that day, a bridge was thrown across the equator, six miles below Ciudad, for the passage of artillery, but only to the difficulties of carriage, it was five days later before the artillery and ammunition could be brought over and this was only done by the aid of eight hundred carts, which Wellington had caused to be quietly constructed during the preceding three months. On the 8th, the Light Division and Peck's Portuguese contingent forded the equator three miles above Ciudad, and making a long detour, took up their position behind a hill called the Great Tison. They remained quiet during the day, and the garrison believing that they had only arrived to enable the force that had long blockaded the town, to render the investment more complete, no measures of defense were taken. But at night, the light division fell suddenly on the redoubt of San Francisco on the Great Tison. The assault was completely successful. The garrison was a small one, and had not been reinforced. A few of them were killed, and the remainder taken with a loss to the assailants of only twenty-four men and officers. A Portuguese regiment, commanded by Colonel Eldar, then set to work and these, in spite of a heavy fire, kept up all night by the French force, completed a parallel six hundred yards in length before day broke. End of chapter 17 Recording by Charles Sapp